Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hey, today we've got a great show for you and it's actually going to be broken into two. So this is part one. I want to ask you, what do you get when you bring together a woman who was an at-risk teen with severe troubles in her family of origin? and a man who on his LDS mission to Morocco worked with hundreds of African refugees who were abused by guards and eventually deported despite all their struggles to make a better life. What you get is a dynamic duo who have partnered together after years of their own experience in social work like violence prevention and humanitarian programs to help families and troubled youth learn to communicate and to solve pain points in their families. You also get a new book called Bang Head Here. I love the title. So stay tuned as we are going to get into their stories, their personal stories, as well as the tremendous work that they are doing. And you'll definitely learn some things about communicating with your loved ones. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Today's podcast is about a number of things. It's about how to communicate in families, especially with at-risk youth. It's about how to recognize the part that we play as parents and caregivers in the miscommunications that occur. And it's about sharing the life experiences of two people who have taken some traumatic experiences in their own lives and turned them into skills to share and to help families communicate better. And it's ultimately about using what they know in helping others along the path of building better life stories. We have a couple of guides with us today. Let me introduce them. First, Holly. Holly has been training teens and adults for over 20 years. Her training work began in the field of violence prevention and dating violence prevention. And she's trained thousands of teens and young adults to recognize the warning signs that lead to violence and deadly relationships. She's an active parent and a teen coach who specializes in working with at-risk teens and young adults and their parents. And, you know, the fabulous thing is that she understands the struggle and the nuances of these relationships because she was once that at-risk teen who found the way to reconnect with her family structure that was once failing. So she's got cred. Josh. He has 15 years of experience working with youth and family in over a dozen countries. He brings a very unique perspective to healing and family culture, having worked alongside thousands of young people and having been inside hundreds of struggling households. Josh's experience has led to deep and powerful insights that help create a new path of healing. So these two together, super powerful. And we get to talk to both of them today. 
Josh has worked for the past decade creating social programs for youth in the U.S. and abroad. And right now he's in Mexico. He brings these 15 years of experience working with youth to help solve these pain problems. And we get to pick his head and figure out how do we communicate better with our people. So welcome you two to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you for having us. Yep, Really excited to be here. This has been uh, on the agenda for a while and we're really stoked to be here. Yeah, we're going to have some, we're going to get some great stuff out of you guys. I finished your book, Banghead here, and oh, it's loaded. It's really, it's really cool. And as a parent, I want to talk to you, like, I feel like it was really timely that this would come to me at this time because I have a, he's in his twenties, but I, you know, sometimes we just have a hard time connecting. And so as I was reading your book and looking at what part do I play in this, how does my personality sort of domino into how he responds, you know, like, what are all the factors here? It was really, really interesting to consider. So this, this first part of this two part series is going to be highlighting the work that you guys do as well as your own personal stories. So let's talk about those personal stories. And Josh, do you mind if we start with you, take us back to your time in Morocco and tell us about the foundation that brought you into this work that it basically defines how you live now. It was, it was a pretty formative time in my life. I mean, I was on my LDS mission. I was 19. I, I, I served my mission in Southern Spain and part of Southern Spain was uh, a province of, of, of Spain called Ceuta in, in Morocco. And so I was really, really stoked as a, as a young kid to be, you know, oh, I get to serve a bi-continental mission. I get to be in Africa. I was you know, already in Spain and loving the people and, you know, as, a, as growing up as a Southern California boy, close to the beach, really never wanted for anything. I was all of a sudden just kind of like first day almost say, hey, you know, we're going to the refugee camp because we had been given this charge to kind of go and help and be of service while we were there. And there was this long kind of bus ride and this long walk up this hill of this, of this like eucalyptus forest. And then planted on this hill was just this random refugee camp of, of people who were coming up from Western Africa, Nigeria, Ghana. And I just remember first day just being like, wow, like this is going to be uh, something very, very different, something I've never experienced. And then as we walked up the hill and people saw that we were coming, they would check out with the guards and come to this little we built into like this ravine, this area for us, like out of crates and out of rocks, a place where we can sit and congregate and kind of hang out and, and talk. And so within just the first first experience, I was just hearing things like, hey, I walked all the way here from, from Nigeria. I had friends die along the way. I had to, you know, drink my own urine to survive or, or you know, just within time and as we gained trust with these people, um, hearing their really awful stories of just rape and violence and doing things just to be able to survive that myself as a spoiled Southern California boy, I never, never had to experience, never really even came into contact with it. It just wasn't even on my worldview. And as this 19 year old kid, um, my perspective was just being broadened and widened. And I was looked to as somebody to give advice. I was in charge of the area at that time or, or shortly thereafter, I was put in charge of the whole area. And so it, it became like this moment in time where connection and connecting through deep personal traumas and deep personal stories became something that I was first introduced to and then became the norm for us. 
it became very much a, a time of, hey, come to my office or come to the ravine where we were all hanging out and tell me what's going on with you. Let me hear what, let me listen and hear what's going on and, and, and tell me what trauma you're going through. And in any way possible, me and the other guys that are here, we're going to try to to try to alleviate that a little bit or find a solution or to help you kind of talk through or process what's going on. And so it just changed the course of my life without me even realizing it, that this all of a sudden, the skill set and this ability to to want to connect and want to hear people's stories and to be able to help people find solutions became a necessity. Well, I bet you really, yeah, I bet you really learned how to love them. You know, when you're serving like that and you're in that kind of vulnerable spaces with people, I think you really learn how to connect. Well, it was, it was very much that way where we'd go quite often to the refugee camp. The people who we were connecting with most would come out um, and we would just talk with them. And, you know, whether it was Charles or, or, or Esther or whoever it was that was coming out, we would just, we just, yeah, learn to love them where they would come to church with us and, We'd be walking down the road with like 50, 60 refugees, you know, holding hands. And one of the things that I got used to was that men like to hold hands in their culture. And so we'd walk down the street and they just grab my hand and we'd just like walk. And for me, I was like, okay, like this person feels safe with me. This person is connecting with me. They're talking with me all along the way. Um, we're having these great things that really influenced the way that I gave lessons or tried to interpret gospel principles to people because I needed something within that whether it was the scriptures or a lesson or whatever to make sense to these people in their lives right now. And that, that to me was probably the most powerful thing. I still have my notebook. That's like this thick of all the lesson plans that I had to give because it was so important to me to connect with them in such a way that made sense to them, that that wasn't just generalities and principles that, that seemed out of reach to them. And what happened with these guys? Well, we created our own little branch, right? And so after a while, we had people who were, you know, interested in the gospel message and and coming and 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 coming to church and being baptized and had lovely baptisms on the beach and 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 then we'd have meals where they would give us a shopping list and we would buy all the stuff to create a, a home cooked meal that they were used to. And so we we're having activities and and just different things like that 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 really just bonded us together as a group and we just became 20, 40 people that were just in this kind of really tight knit branch that we created from nothing. Right. And so tons of connection and tons of uh, bonding through, through help and service and trauma. Right. So their deportation was a really significant moment for you. Tell us about that. Well, there was inklings in the camp towards the latter end of my stay in Ceuta that they were closing things down, that things in Western Europe were kind of anti-immigrant at that time. And so we had heard, you know, inklings that things were going to be going towards just shutting the camp down and then deporting everybody. That was tough because we were still very young in our process with everybody still trying to create this branch, trying to create this kind of little bit of Zion in Ceuta, right? And then one day getting on the boat to go to some meetings on mainland Spain that I had because I was acting as branch president at the time, it's there's a there's a charter service that goes goes across the Strait of Gibraltar from Ceuta back to mainland Spain. And so uh, very much a boat that we were used to taking when we were going, we were kind of getting on the boat and then it takes you up a set of stairs. And then on the left side, there's a place where all your your luggage is. And I heard my name being called out and I look to my left and I see a, a vast majority of the people that I've been working with over the last, you know, six months or so just sitting on my luggage in handcuffs 
And so I ran up to them. The police stopped me. I explained to them who I was and who I was in their lives. And the police was there. I mean, they were kind enough to give me a few minutes, right, to talk with them. Going back, I mean, I was a 19, 20-year-old almost at the time. Like, what do you say to people in that situation? Like, what do you say when you have created and worked hard to create such lasting friendships and have given them so many different I'm, I'm sure in being with us, there was a lot of hopes and, and, and dreams that they were, they were creating of when they got to mainland Spain, joining, joining up with the, with the saints there and kind of continuing on with their, with different things. And now they're just sitting on my luggage, basically in handcuffs. And so I was able to just give them my love, hug, hug them. And, um, and then I was escorted up to my like first class seat where they serve you fresh orange juice and you have a view of the ocean and, comfortable and beautiful and uh that was the last time that that i ever saw them or had contact with them and even though i'm sure we had exchanged i mean email wasn't that big at the time and i gave them my home address and telephone number but yeah in in the 22 years that i've been home or since that experience i haven't heard a single thing from these people that for months and months and months had profound impact on my life. And uh, it was on that boat that I made a promise to myself that I would somehow do something in their honor because I knew the police weren't going to let me see them again. And uh, I, I have no news from them since, right? And so a lot wow. of my life and the things that I did with my nonprofit since then was, uh, was from that. It was in their honor to do something that made a difference because those people had made such a huge impact in, in my life at that time. So tell us a little bit about your nonprofit and the work that you're doing. So in college, I, I went to BYU and had just a great group of friends and I was got into surfing when I was home and, and uh, wanted to start a surf company that was going to make t-shirts and we would donate to some cause. And then I moved to Utah to go to school. And that wasn't exactly uh the surf culture wasn't huge there. And so when the tsunami hit in 2004, we and my group of friends like kind of came together and said, Hey, like we really want to like throw a benefit concert and we'll raise some money. And we did. And it was really successful. And the whole time we just kept on hearing from everybody, like that was awesome. We've never done anything like that before. Like, like we have all this energy. We're young, we're college students. Like when are you guys doing your next benefit concert? Are you guys going to do anything else? And so we just decided to take a trip down to Baja, California, where I had surfed as a kid. And I knew a, a great campsite there. And I looked up on like really old school internet pages, like some orphanages that were in and around the area. Went and visited one on a weekend where we just kind of asked different friends and family, hey, can you chip in 50 bucks, 200 bucks? And people were so kind and generous. And they sponsored like this exploratory trip for us. And we came back from that trip in that orphanage, just like, stoked on the kids super like just really really excited about that that they wanted us to come back and to do like a you know to do a, a full-on trip where we do a you know a, a construction project and working with the kids things like that we went back home sent some text messages out to some people hey this next sunday we're going to have like a a meeting at our house about this trip in mexico and we had 63 people show up at my apartment and and so then we just kind of planned our first trip and it just took off and we thought maybe it would last a semester but it's been going now for 17 years and we've taken 5,000 people plus i think around the world to you know a dozen different countries we've started a lot of mentoring projects and dealing with male mentoring 
because we found out that you know men sometimes create a lot of the problems that we face in this in this world and so we've been creating these really great male mentoring projects one of our male mentoring projects just hit 10 years it has an effect on 10,000 people at least a month and so we're just wow we're going with it right like it's just it's it's sometimes um we're in a you know post pandemic we're in a new phase but um we've just really wanted to help kids out but we really wanted to get young people involved while they had the energy while they had the creativity and the resources to just try to um to make a difference in the world and i i really what, feel like what's we, the name yeah. of it yeah it's what's called, the name of it so people can look it up where can they yeah, find absolutely. it yeah absolutely it's it's uh, kaizen foundation and it's k a iizen.org is our website and we've had a lot of good success and that came from that was me partnering with treatment centers and taking their at-risk youth on trips and developing humanitarian therapy um which then allowed i mean it's such a vulnerable just like i think i learned that a lot from my time in morocco that me being in this new place in this really vulnerable situation i was able to process a lot through my own life and so by taking an at-risk youth to the middle of the bush in Africa and and serving some kids we were able to just really have them open up and we were able to just expose and understand and process through so many traumas and it it really became a an incredibly therapeutic uh, program that we had set up Holly Your expertise on this topic comes from your own experience as a troubled teen. Can you share your story? When I was about eight or nine years old, I was definitely one of those chunky little (laughs) girls. And my parents, I remember them saying, you know, you should really watch what you eat, watch what you do, you know, and I became really self-conscious and pretty insecure about it. Then one day I decided I was going to put myself on a diet. And I was going to change my life. <laughs> and uh, this is about the time that I'm starting to go into middle school. And I'm in a home environment that, whereas my parents uh, had a lot of love for us, there was also a lot of control. And I, I started to lose weight. I started to look good. And I started to get attention. And it was from that feeling like I had been ignored for so many years that I became a bit addicted to the need uh, to have that attention and then afraid to gain weight. I was doing a lot of dancing at the time as well. And what I didn't realize was that I was slipping into an eating disorder and, and it was terrifying my parents at the time. And as our relationship was deteriorating, um, I was losing more and more weight. And so out of desperation, uh, they sent me away from home and I, li- I lived away from home for about a year, a year's time where I started to get counseling and they started to get counseling and went through a, a lot of rehab. And it was during that time that I there was a therapist I worked with that opened up my eyes into helping me feel less guilt about where I'd been. And because at that point, I felt like everything was my fault all the problems, I'm the problem in the house. It was creating a lot of chaos. And he, he was able to teach me that you, you are a product of your parents. And there is a, um, I don't want to use cohesive, but there is this like systems problem that's going on. It's not, it's not just you. And so 
we had to kind of re-simulate in the home and, and try to rebuild our connection, our communication. And I remember at that time, as a teenager, I had the insight to write down all the things that really got on my last nerve <laughs> from my parents. Because I realized that, you know, they just forgot what it was like to be a teen. And I don't want to forget. And I'm going to write about this. Isn't that interesting? At 15, I said, I'm going to write about this. <laughs> I bet that's been incredibly valuable as you move <laughs> forward. Yeah. So we fast forward, you know, we've done a lot of this great healing over the years, had, um, you know, practiced this skill set. And I remember pulling out that journal and that book and reading through and kind of laughing. I'm like, yeah, you know. This, this stuff is real and, and parents do forget what it's like. And at that time, Josh and I were, were reconnecting. We'd grown up in the similar areas and he was working with teens. I had just gotten, gotten done working with at-risk teens and or teens talking about violence prevention. And I'm like, the time is now. The time is now to start writing about how we connect. So how did you and Josh meet? Josh and I knew each other um, from the, the same 10 mile radius and, and church. So you grew up together? We grew up together. Yeah, we were, we were a couple years uh, age difference. So we didn't have like the same friends. We were different schools, but we saw each other enough and, and had enough um, respect and love for each other. When we'd see each other, it was like, hey, how's it going? Especially after school, you know, reconnecting. So we, we just stayed curious in each other's lives, what was going on. I also am a songwriter, so he was curious about that. He's come and supported some of my shows. And then, um, and then one day we had lunch and we were talking, he was working, he was telling me about some of his work with the, uh, the teen boys he was taking out of a rehabilitation. And I was telling him about some of the trainings I was doing out of the prisons, <laughs> I think at the time on dating violence and some of our struggles with parents that we worked with in, in, in being able to enact change in the home and being able to address the family systems issue that seems to be neglected in a treatment environment. And talked about the resources that aren't available for parents um, and thought, hey, let's be a solution. Let's, let's take what you know and what I know and let's create something that could be beneficial. So just so the audience knows, these two are not married. They are just <laughs> friends who have expertise in these areas of helping. And they've come together to use the synergy of these skill sets to do incredible things. So your personal stories, and I think we can say this for all of us, is that oftentimes the things that happen to us are the things that open the door or the window to the thing we want to do. We gain understanding and empathy and clarity about whatever experiences that we are having. And for many people, that is the door that leads them into what they can help people do, right? Like love your stories created the same way. I didn't love my story. I had to come to love my story. And because I walked that path, I knew how to do it and can now help other people do it. So, um, Self-awareness in your own story, maybe looking at your path and where it takes you is always fascinating that, you know, that that journey, that road. So you guys have had these experiences. Let's talk shop now. And um, what trends are you seeing that are causing so much disconnection in families? 
I don't care yes. who takes it. <laughs> yeah. Holly and I have like a system where I'll start and then she kind of cleans up afterwards. So that's kind of our, uh, that's our way of Perfect. going about it. I mean, the, the trends are some, some of them are pretty obvious, right? Like our, our lives have been changed by technology, by social medias and, and those platforms in a way that has brought uh, disconnection and the inability to communicate or to be validated in ways that aren't healthy any anymore. And so we're seeing a lot of trends in families of parents who can't dis- disengage from devices, from kids who can't disengage from devices, who are finding validation in all the wrong places. Such as? And that, oh, just, I mean, for example, on any, any kind of social media platform. How many likes it, you have? Yeah, they're set up for a reason. But, but we don't realize so much in our families and then growing up and when we're developing as humans, what the, what the role of validation plays, like Holly alluded to a little bit in her story, that validation is, is a huge part of why we exist as human beings. And there's appropriate ways to validate and there's inappropriate ways to validate. And unfortunately, a lot of what we see from technology and from the social platforms is uh, kind of validating the invalid and creating kind of these these mm-hmm. um, problems within our family where we're focused on the wrong things. Validating and, the invalid. That's, that's yeah. great. Yes. Yeah. So what are the biggest challenges that teens are facing when it comes to connection then? The, the pandemic didn't do anybody any good. So we're kind of coming off of a time where kids, because of the technology, talking through text, through the socials, all those different things where communication and getting information and the ability for them to, to connect in a deep way was already like a problem because we're young people and they're starting to try to figure out how to like communicate what they're feeling. And a lot of what we do, Holly and I, is teaching young people how to label their feelings and how to not just say I'm pissed off or I'm feeling bad or I'm feeling sad. Those things are, um, those things are very general. And for kids to be able to then get deeper and to understand so we can find mm-hmm. solutions and help them find evidence for those things is an important process. But because of like the hyper novelty of the social platforms and of technology, they never get a chance to go deeper, which then makes communication a lot of one word answers, which I know frustrate parents. And, and then also a lot of secretive stuff that goes on because we're exploring and we're trying to figure out who we are and we're trying to find and identify who we are. And when we don't communicate well, we tend to go secret or go Mm -hmm. rogue. Mm -hmm. Holly, your thoughts. Yeah. um, It it takes a while to develop a a language. We call it for communication, right? Figuring out how to, what words to use to properly communicate how you're really feeling. And I, you know, I've got a client right now that's really struggling to uh, know how to react in a situation. Like there's just not enough, practice that's been going on um so excitement or happiness you know is hard for her to express it turns into sarcasm right (laughs) well i i think if you look at like social media you can easily see that when that is their main form of like interacting with people they don't learn how to explain themselves they don't learn how to and and i find a lot of them have a hard time making eye contact like they they don't know how to assert themselves with an adult right or to in an appropriate way or to be able to say what they feel or think because they just haven't practiced it right they don't they don't do it they're always on their devices right right that that back and forth banter and practice you know even coming out of 
pandemic, adults are feeling anxious about it because they feel out of practice. Because it is, yeah. you know, we are social um, beings, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We are made to be in those environments. Um, so we are seeing that trend and a high trend of anxiety and, a, and also a high trend of parents feeling disempowered. In your book, you guys say, quote, your connection with your loved one is incredibly vital to their emotional stability and their healing process, unquote. And I love this point because, you know, sometimes in my own family, I wonder if I just need to get out of the way. But that was a reminder to me that I need to do what I can to make a good connection with them because that's going to help them in their process of growth and healing because I'm giving them the secure foundation of knowing that they have a safe place at home, right? Like I'm practicing that communication with them. So me just stepping out of the way and letting them forge forward and not communicating isn't the answer. Um, you know, further in the book, you said that we should be asking questions. What can I do to build a stronger relationship with my loved one so that when they start to struggle, I'm connected enough to help them resolve the conflict? That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah definitely. We've got a, a lot of parents that are too far out from this whole concept. If you can start early with younger kids. Yeah. And when when they become adults, you've developed the language, the connection that it's 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 not it's a more stable you know foundation to and so how do we how do we do that how do you create that stable communicative foundation with with children and teens yeah there's there's a lot holly said if we can catch it young meaning like invest instead of having to be on our back foot i think a lot of what's going on with technology and validation is that we're so used to having things like that instant gratification that a lot of parents think that they should implement a skill and that very next day it should work. Right. And so what you have to do is it's just consistency and disengaging, which we talk a lot about in the book is that knowing when your moments are, but also creating moments that are consistent enough. I tell the story a lot is that my dad would take me out on Sunday drives in his little sports car. And it was, it wasn't that every single time we went out, that he was just asking me deep questions about life or telling me things that he was concerned about, but we went every Sunday and I knew that I had a space to talk about things mm -hmm. if I needed to, or that my dad would assert himself and ask me some questions at that time. And so to be able to, to set ourselves up in a way where we look at each one of our childs and find those places where we can invest consistently is 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 key to me and 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 holly feel free to pipe in but that's what was what we i think we have found in in in, in the parents that we're working with is there's so much frustration oh it's not working it's not working well the consistency hasn't been there enough yet you haven't gained the trust of your child to know that you're not just going to try to go into solving mode or it's not going to blow up like it did last time or that you're not just going to be judgmental or impatient with me and so that consistency and learning how to disengage is really important. Okay. So you just said yeah. consistency and disengaging. 
So we're going to ask these questions. Say we set aside this time. We're smart enough to do that. We set aside the time. We talk, you know, as a parent, if you see your child going astray, astray in quotes, I'm doing things that you don't think are good for them. You want to correct that. You, you know, my struggle is if I don't say anything at all, then am I giving them the silent okay to move forward with a bad decision versus if I say something, am I being the naggy mom? You know, yeah. like, so how do you, how do you successfully disengage and how do you, you know, when are you quiet and when are you not quiet when you're going on that ride with your dad, you know, you said that he would engage with you and ask you questions. Well, did he give you advice or is the giving advice, you know, offensive? And that's probably different for each child and what they've been brought up with. But I think this is significant. So the question that we have, and it, it can change for different age groups. Let's say if you're dealing with somebody that's in their 20s, as a parent, and you, you're concerned about certain things and you don't, you, you know, you don't want to be overbearing. You have to kind of ask, what is your intention? What, what is it that you that you want to achieve? Is it if it is to control out of your own fear, then you need to back up a bit. And we always teach like if control is playing in, let's get curious instead. Mm. What is their fear? What are they going through? Tell me a little bit more about what's going on with you and this decision that you have. And that's interesting. And you know, find find out more. And, and it, as a coach, in a way, you can maneuver and. And with an adult child, you can say, are you open to any feedback where you're you're going to ask first, mm. right? Whether whether they're ready to receive that. And if they're like, no, I don't want any feedback, then it's hard as a parent to say, I need to respect this boundary. You're an adult and you're doing your thing. Now, if we back up and it's a 14 year old, it's different, right? Than, than an adult. Josh, you can take it and make a suggestion. If, let's say if it's a 14 year old boy or something. Mm. You're well, I mean, yeah. And, and that's where like what Holly was saying is, is, is spot on because the fact that you can think of any conflict that you've had in the home and you can probably trace it back to a fear or a, you know, a feeling of con- that you're out of control. And in that moment, all you wanted to do was to control whatever the behavior was or whatever was going on. Right. And so when we talk about disengaging and picking your right moment, we're asking you to be able to check in with yourself. And that's what a lot of the book is about is to really get to know your own traumas and pains and kind of default settings to know, okay, like this is coming up for me. So obviously this is not the right moment right now for me to, to engage my 14 year old son in this conversation because I need to go resolve this or kind of um, just kind of calm myself down so that I can have the intention to go back in with some more curiosity instead of control. And the consistency with that over and over again is what's going to build trust in anybody is, hey, mom didn't react the same way that she reacted last time. Mom was more curious. Mom didn't Mom didn't seem very judgmental. Okay, cool. That's like another little, you know, rock in the trust bucket that will allow them to be like the next time something comes up and you pick your moment well. Like you were saying earlier, Lori, it's not like we want to invalidate the, you know, to validate the invalid by just not saying anything, right? By saying like, I'm just going to let this slide. That's not what disengaging means. Disengaging is just that moment for you to come and take that breath and say, where am I at right now? And what do I need to do in order to make this go as well as possible? And for me to present myself as curious as possible so that the conversation continues. That is all that we want is for the conversation to continue. Okay, I'm taking notes. (laughs) 
one of the things that I liked in your book that really gave me pause was the concept toward the end about how each of us, you know, we're the center of our own universe. We know this. We're the hero of our own story. Right. So everything that we're thinking about is coming from our perspective and the way we're seeing things as a parent. You may be seeing something like you say, from a fear base of I don't want you to have to go through that. I know what's going to happen if you make that choice. Um, but that stop and that get curious idea. I love that curious because that helps us with everything. Um and shift over into what is that child feeling like? Why did they make what looked like a really stupid mistake? But maybe they're trying to deal with peer pressure. Maybe they're trying to deal with something that happened to them that you're not aware of. Maybe they're trying to deal with um, something that is they've interpreted something incorrectly. And, you know, and it's a, anyway, they have their perspective, right. And it's hard for us to see through it, especially if they don't share with us what that perspective is. So I think key, what I'm hearing is you have to build trust and building trust. Isn't trying to control them. Isn't trying to judge them. Isn't those are the things that push them away. So as you're building trust by, let's say, continuing the conversation by stopping, disengaging, picking a right moment. When is the right moment to pick something up? You you can build the trust by not judging, but at some point, if you want to bring something up, when is that right moment? Definitely. Uh, go ahead, Josh. No, go ahead. Definitely not when they're stressed or really tired, right? And Josh, what Josh is suggesting is that you have weekly check-in moments that allow for these types of conversations to happen. In some cases, it's going to be like if something comes up that day and you're like, we have to deal with the, the, you know, this day or today, it is okay to approach your loved one and say, I, I noticed what just happened today or whatever was going on. Um, something we need to talk about. When do you think is a good time today for you that we can and, just kind of meet? And how know? do you get kids to trust you if you haven't? created that trust as from the childlike on up because even if you try to as parents that doesn't mean that they are interpreting what's going on the same way you are you know what yeah. i mean yeah. yeah and before we answer that i wanted to back up because you had asked a question that i didn't get to get to answer you're like how do we build trust and we we build trust by showing up emotionally repeatedly and engaging right so the mom that is busy who's uh, like obviously needs to be busy taking care of this whole household and the child comes home and wants to talk about their day. And she's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, great, honey. You could say, oh, I had crack, you know, I smoked crack, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. And checking my <laughs> messages. This is not how we're building trust on the subconscious level. That child says, I'm not important to you right now. Even though the mom says you're the most important thing. That's why I'm doing all this stuff. Right. But it's the engagement. And a lot of teens are struggling with the lack of engagement with parents also checked out on their own social devices. Right. That mm. you lose trust. So to answer then your question, if you if you haven't spent time building the trust, then we ask you to start taking a look at your engagement in what matters to your children. The little mm -hmm. conversations, asking the questions, how was so-and-so? What did you think about that? Oh, and, and not having an opinion or judging, just laughing with them, having a good time, you know, so that they feel like, wow, I feel like someone sees me. And these little moments added up in addition to what Josh is saying, creating time every week where you're able to connect on something that they love to do builds trust. 
Um, and if you have an adult child where they, they don't have that relationship, then it's going and saying, look, I recognize that over the years, we haven't connected the way that would allow us to trust each other in this relationship, but I'm ready to do the work if you're ready to do the work. And I don't know necessarily what that looks like, but I, I wanna be able to connect with you. And so if you feel like judgment's coming out or if you feel like you're locking down, let's talk about that and then have, be able to take a pause and have the, have the, spa, the, like, um, the patience within yourself to step back and go, everything right now just makes me wanna scream and yell and say something, but, I'm going to do it differently and I'm just going to listen <laughs> so that they feel, you know, like they're heard, that they're respected on an equal plane like you would one of your friends. I can see the importance of what you guys are doing in working with the caregivers as well as the youth and young adults, because it's definitely a two-sided thing. Everybody needs to be in on, on fixing and connecting. How, how do people get a hold of you? What, what kind of coaching and stuff do you offer? Tell us a little bit about that. There's, we have our website is joshandholly.com and Holly is spelled H-O-L-L-I-E. It looks like it, people think that's like an engagement site, like you were kind of joking around before, but that's just our website name. And we've got a, a really robust website that kind of explains in depth what we do, but we do a lot of like on a day-to-day, -day, I'm doing a lot of teen coaching, a lot of like, you know, young adult coaching. But Holly and I are very passionate, like you said, about this wraparound kind of idea. And that's kind of what got this all started is that the parents are the most important part of this equation. And as much as like a kid would get sent to a wilderness program or to a treatment center and be returned right back to the same home environment, um, we do a lot of parent coaching and we take them through our book, um, which is on Amazon, Banghead here, um, so that we can kind of take them step by step through this process of reconnecting with themselves understanding themselves and then reconnecting with their loved ones as a kind of like as, as that process, right? Absolutely. So, yeah. so we're out of time for today, but tune in in two weeks for the rest of the story. We're going to answer more burning questions about communication and connection between young adults and teens and parents as they work to write the best life story with the people that they love. So, Share this episode with somebody who needs to hear it, and we'll see you in two weeks for part two.